0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. John chapter four, we're going we're gonna to focus our attention on the first six verses, but I think I'm going to read a little bit more than that this morning. If you would uh, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of scripture together. Now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where will you get that living water? or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar there and went away into the town And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have labored into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to see him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to this woman, "It is no longer because of what you said that we believe; for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world." And after two days, she departed for Galilee. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we come to to a, another famous story, another story that that many of us have have heard, uh, probably uh, know rather well. Lord, and we pray that as we go through it and and reflect on it and and think about it, Lord, I I pray that you would use the the preaching of your word to, to grow us, to shape us, that we might learn from this story, that we might be shaped and equipped and emboldened for service in your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would use these things your word in our lives in ways that we could not ever imagine, for your glory, your honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Do do you know what uh, universalism is? I, I don't want to just throw out the word and have some that are unsure what I mean by it. Or, I don't want to throw it out and have you think it means one thing and I another. Universalism is the, the Christ, in Christian circles is the doctrine that in some way all people will be saved in the end. Now, of course, it's not true. It isn't true for a number of reasons, but those who hold to it do so because... They are supposedly looking at who God is. God is full of grace and mercy. When they think to themselves, there is no way that a, a gracious God, a God that is so merciful, would ever let people spend eternity in hell, a place of torment that does not end. Some go so far as to say that even the devil and his angels will be redeemed at some point. And they're trying to be consistent, right? If God will not let any human perish, but will ultimately save them all because he cannot bear to lose any, then what about the devil and his angels? Well, it would make sense that in the end, the Lord would save them as well, I suppose, in spite of their constant opposition to him, just as he does uh, those people who live their lives greatly opposed to Christianity. Again, I'm not a universalist. Uh, universalism is a heresy. It's a false teaching. It is a denial of the, of the authentic Christian faith. I'll say that as clear as I can. Uh, what has happened, though, is that the universalists have, have so emphasized that the grace and mercy of God that they've totally abandoned uh, God's justice. His righteousness. And the only way to understand God's grace and mercy is in, in His forgiveness, is in light of who He is, in light of His justice, in light of righteousness. You can't take one perfection of God, such as love or mercy, and then Uh, seek to understand that attribute of God or that perfection by abandoning his other perfections like righteousness or justice. We can't separate God like that. He's not, he's not, you can't do that. You can't pit God against himself as if love and justice were in contradictory to one another. The fact is, Some will spend eternity in a devil's hell, and others in the presence of God. Just notice how Paul describes this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. He says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed notice how that text is so clear suffer punishment that is eternal separated from the presence of god then there are the other then there are those on the other side those who have believed and the lord jesus will be glorified in his saints they will marvel at him it's a tremendous picture there of of Heaven and being gathered together with with God, there are a number of passages that speak of hell as being eternal. Um, that one uh, revelation fourteen nine through eleven let me just give you that uh, example there. We read of the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. I wanted to start talking about universalism because I wanted you to know what it was so that I could point out another kind of universalism as it would, so we wouldn't get confused between the two. Uh, a right way to use the word, so to speak, in a Christian context. So there, there is a, a true universalism, not that all people will be sa- that, not that all people will be saved, but that all people may be saved. What I'm saying is that The scriptures teach that no person is barred from the kingdom of God. No person is denied eternal life because of their sex, because of their education, because of their intellect, because of their ethnicity or their nationality. It doesn't matter how wealthy they are. If they're in a high social position, a low one, I'm not saying that everybody's going to be saved in the end. What I'm saying is that the gospel is offered to all people without reservation. This is what we mean. In fact, a better way of speaking of this is not universalism. It's what we call the, the free offer of the gospel. John McLean said it this way. It is one of the glories of the gospel that it is universal in scope. There is nothing narrow or limited about the good news of salvation. It is for all the nations. This truth has inspired great missionary movements of the church. It has led to the world being turned upside down on many occasions, and it's still changing lives through the world today. Because of the universality of the gospel offer, The day is coming when a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues will stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. That's the point of Revelation 7-9, that the people of God will be composed of all the people on the earth. And that is because of the universal scope of the gospel offer. that the gospel is offered to all people without reservation. So why am I bringing this up? Well, as we come to the fourth chapter of John's gospel, we should go back for a moment where we uh, started in the third chapter several weeks ago. In that portion, we met Nicodemus, and we said that John introduces us to Nicodemus to show us an example of a man that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we go back further to the end of chapter 2, we see how people were following Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. In the very next verse that happens to be in chapter 3, we're introduced to Nicodemus. And he's an example of the human race, an example of a man that needs Jesus Christ. Of course, the point isn't that Nicodemus was the only one that needed the gospel. There were others. We know that all people need it. That's what we've been talking about. But John brings forth Nicodemus as an example of one that needs Jesus, a very recognizable man. And then we are introduced to a second Of John's examples of those who need Jesus. And this was an unnamed woman who Jesus met in Samaria near Syker's well. Here's what I want to do for the next few moments as we just start to think about this conversation that Jesus is gonna have with this woman at the well. I want to, to first think about the, the differences between this woman, this unnamed woman, and Nicodemus. I, I think that it's part of, of all of this that we shouldn't miss. That the, the, the differences between these first two examples of people that, that need Jesus. And then we need to turn after a while and look at the similarities between the two. between Nicodemus and the unnamed woman. I I don't think that we can understand this whole story without thinking about these two things, how they were different and then how they were the same. So what do we know about this woman? Well, we know that she was from Samaria. I don't know how much to to make about this at this point. We'll talk about it again uh, probably later. At least... Uh, here, let me go back to our discussion about the universal call of the gospel for a moment, right? Samaria was a place that Jews didn't like to travel through. It, it comes out in the, the story here. Jesus was going to Galilee, and he had to travel through Samaria. He didn't like to go through it. Was it because the, the roads were so bad? Uh, that's not it. It's because they didn't like the people. They thought they were uh, half-breeds. They were not Jews, right? When the Israelites were taken into captivity, they intermarried, they had children. Uh, These people then were the product of those relationships. And for the Jews, uh, these were worse than Gentiles. They were despised by them as a general rule, anyway. It's obvious that Jesus didn't feel this way. And and there were most likely some Jews that didn't share the, the same disdain. But generally, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. It says that right in the text. Of course, some of this comes out in the story when the woman is curious why Jesus, a Jew, is asking her for a drink because she is a woman of Samaria. It's quite the contrast with Nicodemus, who was introduced in chapter 3, verse 1, as a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. So on one side... There's a ruler of the Jews, one that the Jews would have respected, one they would have looked up to. They would have looked to him for spiritual advice. He was a teacher. He knew the scriptures. Contrast that with uh, this woman who was unnamed, who Jews wouldn't even speak to. They thought of them as, as a, a less than nothing person, by and large. You can't really get two examples of people that are so different. I wonder, though, when it comes to the gospel, we know that the gospel is to be proclaimed to to everyone without distinction. I think that when we talked about that a moment ago, there was nothing new there for us. We all agreed, we all nod along in agreement. The gospel is for everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality, regardless of status, regardless of any of those things. We know that, but yet there are people in our lives that are close to us, perhaps family, perhaps friends, perhaps neighbors, coworkers whoever they are, people that we've never had a gospel conversation with, and my question is, is why in the world not? I mean, just think about that question for a moment. Why why in the world not? Well, we might say, my neighbors, they like to drink. They're a little wild. I don't really fit in with them. If if that's your excuse, then... You know, or that there's an excuse like it that you have. What you are essentially saying is that the universal element to the gospel that we have talked about doesn't really apply to that situation. The gospel is for all people, well, except if they're a little wild and we don't really fit in with them. Who in the world would you fit in well enough with to have that gospel conversation? If you're waiting around to fit into a situation, you probably will be waiting for a long time. What about the the co-worker that you've had countless conversations with about family and all sorts of not work-related things? You might have talked about church, but talking about church is not the gospel. You've had these conversations, but haven't had a real gospel conversation with them. And the question is, is why in the world not? What are you waiting for? Either the gospel is for all people, without distinction, without reservation, or it's not. And I am suggesting that on one hand, we say that the gospel is for all people, but then by our actions, we really don't believe that because there are people that are too wild, they party too much, they're a little annoying, right? Whatever that excuse is, whatever reason that you might have to not have that conversation with them, those excuses say that in your heart, we believe that the gospel is for all people regardless, except in instances where I don't feel comfortable talking about Jesus, like at work. I I just, I don't feel comfortable bringing the, the gospel into my workplace. Well, Invite your coworker over to your house. Invite them to church. Have lunch with them afterwards to talk about. I mean, you could find a way. There are countless ways here. One of the greatest things about this story in John chapter 4 is that Jesus had the conversation with the woman. I mean, think about it. In in all of this, I mean, we're going to spend, I don't know, I think four weeks going through this story The greatest thing about this story is that Jesus had a conversation with a woman from Samaria. That's the greatest thing. It's such a simple thing. He starts talking to her. It's a trivial thing in so many ways, but yet it's something that many of us never do. We never have an intentional conversation with somebody about the gospel. When I was in college in Florida, I took uh, an evangelism class, and that evangelism class was by a guy by the name of Dr. Mark Jumper. Uh, He's still there at the school. Uh, He speaks in chapel once in a while, and I see him on on Facebook and in the live stream. I remember him saying in evangelism that over 90% of Christians will never share their faith. He lined up surveys and statistics to back up that, that number. So really, the the remarkable thing here is that Jesus had the conversation. That he didn't have an excuse, right? If it were us, we'd be full of excuses. We had a good one. Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. Christians don't have anything to do with people who are a little too wild. But isn't this the gloriousness of the gospel that where we have fallen short in the, or, in the area of sharing the gospel, Jesus even did that perfect, and therefore his perfect righteousness in that area covers our imperfection, covers our excuses. That to me is extremely humbling, that he would do that for me. I mean, I should be excited and thrilled to tell anyone who would listen about what happened in my life, what Jesus did for me but I I don't. I have excuses. And Jesus took that sin upon himself, a truth that should should be so freeing to me to start and have these conversations with people. Just out of gratitude for the gospel itself in that. So Nicodemus and the the woman here with no name, one a, a Jew, the other Samaritan, big contrast, but Nicodemus was also a, a very moral person. Looked up to by, by many people in the area of morality. He not only knew the law and taught it to people, but he was observant. He was an example in everybody's mind in, in how to be obedient to the law. The Pharisees would be seen on top of the moral ladder. But the unnamed woman here, on the other hand, was Immoral. She apparently had a bad reputation. This is seen in the fact that she came to draw water in the heat of the day. The reason that one would do that is that there was nobody else there during that time, especially other women. It's quite obvious from uh, different commentaries and things that, that people agree that she wanted to be there alone, or more accurately, she didn't want anybody else to be there. She came to get water. That's all she wanted, but she met Jesus. And Jesus offered her water like no other. Jesus offered her something that would quench a thirst that she didn't even know she had, a thirst for God. This woman, which Jesus, know, which Jesus knew, had, a, had had five husbands. We don't know the whole story there. Perhaps some of that wasn't her fault. We don't know for sure. But we do know here that Jesus intentionally brings this up. He asked her to go and get her husband. She said she didn't have one. Jesus said, well, you've had five. The one you're with now isn't your husband. It seems to me that Jesus is pointing out her sin. I think we're catching a glimpse here into the fact that this woman has a lot of baggage. She was a little wild, perhaps. She was one of those that it would be Difficult for those who didn't exactly run in her circles to have a conversation with her, to befriend her, to share with her how she can have uh, the greatest need in her life remedied. But that's what Jesus did here, is what we're all called to do. Not to make judgments as to one's worthiness to hear the gospel, but we must get out of our comfort zone and to share with people that aren't like us. To start conversations, to start relationships. Just think about the contrast here between the two people that that we've had as examples of one's need for the gospel. Nicodemus was a sophisticated Jew. She was a a simple Samaritan woman. He was a Pharisee. She didn't belong to a religious party. He was a, a politician, but she didn't have any status. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name in the scriptures, but she wasn't given a name in the scriptures. He was a man, she was a woman. He came at night to Jesus to protect his reputation. She came to the well at noon to save face. Nicodemus came seeking answers, but Jesus sought out the woman to have this conversation with her. Remarkably different in about every respect. Just think about all these differences for a moment. Nicodemus is an example of one that, that, that can't rise high enough above salvation. You know, he can't, he can't rise above the, the moral ladder. He can't get on top of it so much to not need salvation. He can't save himself. The woman is an example of the truth that no one can sink too low to be unworthy of the gospel. It's a wonderful truth that on one hand, no person can work hard enough to be worthy enough of their own, on their own to to, to receive the gospel. They still need Jesus to deal with their sin, but the reverse is true. And this is the truth that most of us should really find extremely heartwarming, and that is that there is no depth to our sin and rebellion that can make us unworthy to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're, we're thinking about the, the differences, but we also need to think about the, the similarities between Nicodemus and the woman here. We've already pointed some of this out, I, I think, between, um, between the lines, but let's just think about what they have in common. Four things. First, they both thought that they were in a good place spiritually. the The woman and Nicodemus both thought they were in a good place spiritually. Certainly, Nicodemus thought this because of his religious and and, and intellectual achievements. The woman thought that she was in a good place spiritually because of her super of her superstitions, because of the the religious traditions of the the Samaritans. Certainly, Nicodemus had questions of of Jesus. He knew that he was that Jesus was special, but that doesn't mean that he thought he wasn't okay. Both of these individuals believed that they were okay when in reality they were far from it. I think there's a lot of people in that category. There are great differences between people, language, tradition. Some are moral, some take pride in their sin. But whatever the, the case, many believe that they're in a, a good place, spiritually speaking. We hear people say things like, uh, along these lines all the time, well, I'm not religious. I don't like organized religion, but I am a spiritual person. I guess I'm not sure what exactly that means. They believe in, in spiritual things. What spiritual things? I don't think they know exactly what spiritual things. But really, what this means is that they don't adhere to any religion per se, but at the same time, they believe they're in a good place spiritually. Just because one believes that they're in a good place spiritually doesn't mean that they are in a good place spiritually. One person told me once that they're not, they were not on the same page as me concerning the Christian faith. They thought that the Christian faith had had value. They just couldn't buy into it. Then they, they tried to make me feel a little better about uh, having this rejection by uh, saying, but, but don't worry, I have my own, I have my own beliefs. I, I believe things. In other words, they were saying, don't worry about me. I might not believe in Christianity. I might not believe in the, in the faith, in the Christian faith. But I do, I, do have my own, I do have my own beliefs. I'm in a good place spiritually. Don't worry about me. Um, no, you're not, right? Just like Nicodemus and this unnamed woman, many people think they're in a good place, but really they're not. And someone must be willing to have that conversation with them to show them that really you're not Okay. A second point of similarity between Nicodemus and the unnamed woman is the fact that they reacted to Jesus' spiritual teaching in a very literal and materialistic way. Jesus was teaching about the new life that is available from himself, and when he spoke to Nicodemus, he was using the the image of the new birth or being born again, and, and Nicodemus could only think about obstetrics. When... Jesus was, was offering the, the woman living water. She could only think about the distance between the, the well and her house and not having to come there anymore. Paul said to the church at Corinth, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I heard about a study that happened not long ago, and and basically the study was being put forward as a a great need for secularism in our society. And the reason that they gave was that science has shown us, right, science, has shown us that the world is, is better off when a society turns more secular and abandons religion. It basically says that a learned person believes in, in science. They believe in the, the basic goodness of all human beings that exists apart from religion. Now, I'm not going to say that it is just religion, generally, that makes the world better, but I would say that the gospel of Jesus Christ does change the world. It has before. It will continue. There are many people believe in a, a material world. They, they look to, to science for the answers in, in life. They look for science to, to save them, to save society, to make the world a, a better place. And I think the, the question of our hope is often an illustration of this. When the world goes through difficult times, like a, a global pandemic, for instance, the question of what is your hope comes pretty quick, right? If, if science rules, if there's only the material, then what is the hope to, to save us from this? Our hope is ourselves. Our hope is in our accomplishments, in our medical achievements, in medical advancements and development, it's a vaccine or, or some other medical marvel. I'm not suggesting that you don't get the, the vaccine. That isn't my point. Medical achievement is a, a gift from the hand of God. It is common grace. Uh, but here is, is my point. Uh, the 21st century moralist and the 1st century moralist both need to meet the Jesus of Christianity and come to know the super, supernatural basis for the Christian faith. I love how John Stott put it. He says that these people uh, need to be confronted with authentic Christianity. He calls it this is the Christianity of Christ and the apostles. This isn't simply a, a religion of of moralism and harmless ethics, which would, the world would would love it if we if that's all Christianity was. But the Christian faith is a religion that has its foundation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is because of this. That this new life is given to those who believe. And their hope rests in him. There's another way that Nicodemus and the unnamed woman are, are similar. And this is going to sound a little bit contradictory when it comes to what I've already said. But bear with me, I don't think it is. What these two had in common is that they, like all people, they were both empty spiritually. And they sensed their need for God even though everything in them denied that they, there was a need there. It's true that one can believe on, on one hand that they're fine spiritually but still know deep within them that something isn't right. The fact is sin separates us from God and that being separated from God and when that relationship is not harmonious then there are consequences. We know that. There is an emptiness. But at the same time, Paul tells us in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this world has blinded them to the truth. So one is is blinded to the truth, to the fact that they're in, in great need. Augustine said it this way. He says, thou, speaking of God, has made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There's a a restlessness that exists in the human soul. A fourth way that Nicodemus and the unnamed woman were the same. They were the same in the fact that they were both spiritually lost. They were both spiritually lost. The the dictionary defines lost as ruined, destroyed, having wandered far away, absorbed, wasted, hardened beyond sensibility or recovery, insensible. And if we added to that definition the idea of of deliberate waywardness or rebellion, then it would be close to the biblical definition of, of one who is living their life apart from God and is therefore lost. In Romans 3.12, we read that all have turned away and all have become worthless. It's the idea of lostness, turning away. So the the lostness is a result of an active and willful departure from God's way. The, The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he uses this word, They are turned away 139 times to paint a a grave picture of the human race and all of our willful rebellion against God. Let me just share one of those instances with you. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One commentator said it this way, and this is a, a lengthy quote, but I think it's important. He said, we have rejected the law of God, spurned his, calls of, spurned his calls of love, refused his counsel, and laughed at his reproof. We have become worse than beasts in our relationship with our creator. In our language, we speak of animal characteristics in man and call the obstinate ones, mulish, dogged, or pig-headed but God tells us that this is an insult to animal creation. From Genesis, where we find the sinful man hiding among the trees, to Malachi, where God declares, ye are turned aside out of the way. There is one long history of sin against love and rejection of grace. The position of man is even worse than that of the devil and the fallen angels and the demons. There is no record that there was ever any offer of salvation made to them. But of the human race, there is the record of the greatest love of the universe that was offered to them, and they willfully rejected it. So, what does a person do when they're lost? Well, the simple answer is to find your way back. But what if you cannot? I went elk hunting in the mountains with my dad when I was a kid. We got up there, and I had no idea where I was. I had no idea where our camp was. I had no idea where uh, town was. I mean, if I would have got separated, I would have been, I would have been in, in trouble. But luckily, I was thankful that my dad knew right where we were. But I remember hearing stories of of how hunters would get caught in a a snowstorm on the mountains and and they would get turned around and they, they couldn't find their way out. And in some instances, those hunters didn't survive because they were lost. They couldn't find their way out of the situation and they ended up freezing to death. What do you need if you're lost spiritually and there's no way out of the situation? That's the the similarity between these two. Different in every way. But same in the fact that they were lost. You need a savior. It's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and save that which was lost. I love both the the differences and the similarities when it comes to these characters in, in John. These two totally different people. In fact, they couldn't be more different. But when it comes right down to it, they were both lost and they both needed a Savior. And these two are very representative of the world that is around you and I. The real people that come in our lives day in and day out. Nobody is above the gospel and nobody is below it. That's the point. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the way that you love us and that you would would see us in our hopeless estate, that that we're lost, we're willfully wandering around looking for our way back, we're groping at at different things, Our, our self, our education, science. All of these things. We're, we're looking for them. We're trying to to find our way back. And sometimes we even think that we we got it figured out. We think that we're going to be okay in the end. But we realize here that, that without you, without a savior, we're all lost. Our destiny, our it is is it's hopeless. Lord, I pray that you would convict us to be people who, who see the world around us as people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no, nobody's above it, nobody's below it. But yes, we see the, we see the differences. We, we see people as different people, but at the same time, we recognize that there is this sameness in all of them that, that brings them together. ultimately, without you, people are lost. There's no hope, and they need a Savior. And I pray that we would be the people that introduce them to Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.